Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. I confess, Lord, that nothing good will take place, nothing life-changing will take place unless your Holy Spirit comes and anoints both this message and the people that have gathered today. Lord, thank you for this flock, this small little flock. I remember you, Jesus, telling your disciples, fear not, little flock. <laughs> Lord, we're one of your little flocks around the world today. We've gathered in the name of Jesus. We've gathered to glorify him. We've gathered to love each other. We've gathered because we want to hear from you, Lord. And Lord, would you be so good as to speak through this poor, bumbling <laughs> preacher today? Would you speak your message, Lord, and cause people to have ears to hear and really gain something that would bring life? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our text this morning is from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3b. It's the very last phrase of Genesis 12, verse 3. Here, the Lord has come and given promises to our father Abraham. And this is one of his promises. In you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, from this text, we learn that God has a worldwide plan. God has a plan to bless the whole world, which tells us that our God is a missionary God who's going to accomplish this plan through a missionary Savior, by the power of a missionary spirit. And he's called us to be a missionary church because he's got a worldwide missionary plan. You get the point? We're going to be talking about missions today. <laughs> and as we try to unpack this phrase in Genesis 12.3, we're going to be going through various passages in Genesis, Matthew, Acts, and some in Galatians to take a look at what this phrase really meant in all of its fullness. As we do that, we're just going to trace it through. And I hope that you can follow as we find out how God opens up over the passage of time. He opens this phrase up and makes it clearer and clearer as to exactly what he meant when he gave that original promise to Abraham. And so as we work our way through this text, we're going to look at three aspects of it. Three questions from this text. Who are these blessings from? What are these blessings, and who are these blessings for? Or to put it another way, we're going to be talking about the source of the blessings, the substance of the blessings, and the scope of the blessings. But that's the direction we're moving in. So first of all, let's talk about the source. Who are these blessings from? Well, of course we know they're from God, but we're going to take our time with this and see how the scripture unpacks that. Our, the very first inkling we have that God is going to bring blessing to the whole world is way back in Genesis 3.15. As soon as man sins, God gives a promise. In fact, this is the very first preaching of the gospel in the Bible. God's the preacher. He's got three people in his congregation. The serpent, Adam and Eve. And his gospel message is that there's going to come a seed from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And of course, we know that what he was talking about is that a descendant of Eve is going to arise, a Messiah, a deliverer, who's going to crush Satan's power so that we are freed from the tyranny of sin 
and Satan, and God restores us back to the paradise that we were driven out of because of sin. Very first gospel promise. Notice the source of the blessing there in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Now, that's not altogether helpful because it's so broad. The woman is Eve, and the seed could be anyone, any of her descendants, which is billions of people. So we, we need to narrow down that seed a little bit. So that's why we come to Genesis 12.3, and God narrows it down quite a bit for us, because he says, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, well, now it's narrowed down quite a bit. Of all the people on the face of the earth, it's going to come from Abraham. Now, we might make a mistake here. We might think that God was saying, Abraham, in you personally, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But that's not what God meant. And we find that when we go to Genesis chapter 22. Take a look at that with me. Genesis 22, verse 18. This is right after Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. God comes to him and he says, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, he said in Genesis 12, 3, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now he says, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is helping us to understand this promise. He's kind of, uh, he starts off painting with very broad strokes, and those strokes get narrower and narrower and more defined as we work our way through scripture. So, starts off with the seed of the woman, now it's the seed of Abraham. Well, let's keep working our way through. Genesis 26, verse 4. Here God appears to Isaac, and he says to him, And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants, literally seed, and by your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Here God narrows it down even further, because Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God rejected the line of Ishmael. He said it's going to come through Isaac and his line. Now, let's keep going. Genesis 28, verse 14. God here appears to Jacob, and he says, Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your, literally, seed, NASB says descendants, but it's literally seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. Now fast forward 2,000 years, and we come to the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who? The son of Abraham, or you could say the seed of Abraham. Abraham and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, guess who Jesus is? The seed of Abraham. We're not left to conjecture. This isn't speculation because I want you to turn over to the book of Acts chapter 3 and let's see how the apostle Peter puts this as he's preaching. Acts chapter 3 verse 25. You're going to get a workout in your Bibles today. Turn in those pages because we're going to be going all over the place. Acts 3.25. Peter said, it is you, he's speaking to the people of Israel, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. 
saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, Peter, well, what does that mean? Let's keep reading. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So who's the seed of Abraham, according to Peter? God's servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this servant, Jesus, is going to bless them. He's going to bring the blessing that God spoke about in Genesis 12, verse 3, by turning every one of them from their wicked ways. Now, turn over to the book of Galatians. And Galatians is really the book that unfolds and expands on and helps us to understand this promise the most. Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to get our help today. Okay, let's pick it up in Galatians 3, verse 14. And we're going to break right into the middle of a sentence, but it's okay. Galatians 3, 14 says, In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles are all the families of the earth. They are all the nations of the earth. It's just another way of saying the same thing. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So who is the source of these blessings according to the Apostle Paul? Jesus Christ. These blessings come to us in Christ Jesus. Now, if we have any doubt, look at verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Nothing could be more clear than that. What Paul is telling us is that when God made the promises to Abraham, those promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, his singular offspring. Sometimes that word seed in the Hebrew can mean a collective seed or it can mean an individual seed. And the context has to determine what it means. The Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, tells us that this is a singular seed. So when God made the various promises to Abraham, it was to Abraham and to Jesus Christ that those promises were made. The promises are fulfilled in Christ so that everyone who is in Christ also receives the promises that were made to Abraham. Do you follow that? It's Abraham and Christ. If you're in Christ, the promise is made to you because the promise was made to Jesus. And you're in Jesus, so the promise comes to you. That's why he can say in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you see it? The promises made to Abraham are yours because they were made to Jesus and you're in Jesus, so they're your promises. Now, that's a mouthful. It's a lot to meditate on for just a moment, but I want you to think about how Paul begins his first, his, um, the first section of Ephesians in chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the promises, the blessings that God promised to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed, the Apostle Paul says that happens in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ right now. They're ours through our union to Jesus. So that's the source of these blessings. 
It's Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the substance of them. What are the blessings? What are they? He said, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, what blessings is he talking about? Well, let's, let's find out. There's four of them that I was able to discover. And interestingly, they actually follow the order of salvation. And I'm going to give you some theological terms, and I'm going to explain them. But here, here they are. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Those are the blessings that come to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ. And that's why we receive them, because we're in Christ. We are regenerated, we're justified, we are sanctified, and we're glorified. Now, first of all, let's talk about the blessing of justification. We're back in Galatians chapter 3. And I want you to take a look at verse 8 with me. This is great. Galatians 3.8. And the scripture foreseeing that God... I'm sorry. I'm starting on justification. Let's back up to regeneration. Verse 14. Galatians 3.14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the what? The Spirit. One of the blessings that God promised to Abraham was this promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the principal thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes to a sinner? He regenerates that sinner. And what that means is that he makes that sinner alive. Regeneration is simply the Holy Spirit granting spiritual life to a spiritually dead sinner. And that's how all of us were at one time. We're born into this world spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That is the doctrine of regeneration. We're talking about the new birth, new life. Did you know that was a promise that God gave to Abraham? And that's a promise that will extend throughout the world. All the families of the earth, some from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation are going to receive the blessing of new life in Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about this same blessing in John chapter 3 when he said, that you must be born of the Spirit. He said you must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So born of the Spirit. This is that experiential element of the Christian life. You know, some of the the phases of the Christian life you can't really experience. Justification, non-experiential. Regeneration, you experience it. Something happens to you. Literally happens on the inside of a man. God takes out the old stony heart and he puts a new one in there. He makes him a new person. The nature's changed. The heart has changed. The will is inclined to righteousness and to holiness. He finds that he begins to hate sin. He finds that he loves people who are lost and he wants them to hear the gospel. Now, where does this happen? Did did he just decide, I'm going to change all my ways one day and I'm going to have a different heart? Well, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Nope. (laughs) Neither can you who are accustomed to do evil start doing good. You can't change your nature. See, we're born with a particular nature, aren't we? A nature that loves to sin. How are we ever going to get a nature that hates sin and loves righteousness? God. 
God's going to have to do it. And you know what? He does it alone. He doesn't look for us for help in this matter because we don't have any help to give. We just I just quoted you Ephesians 2.4. We were dead when God did this. We're spiritually dead when he made us alive together with Christ. It's the work of God alone to give us this beautiful uh, experiential element of the Christian life, which is new birth, new life, regeneration. It reminds me of Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, God comes to the prophet Ezekiel, and he leads them throughout this great valley. And as they walk around in this valley, everywhere they see this great pile of dry, dusty, dead bones everywhere. And God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Beats me, Lord. <laughs> I don't know. Only you know this one. And so the Lord says, I want you to prophesy to these dry bones. And I want you to say, Thus says the Lord, The breath of God is going to come into you. And you're going to have sinew that's going to wrap itself around these bones. And skin's going to form on the bones, and they're going to come to life. And so Ezekiel did. He prophesied. Breath of God, come into these dry bones. And there's a great rattling and shaking that was taking place. And those bones are rattling together and coming together. You know, the hip bone's connected to the thigh bone. <laughs> All these bones are being joined together. And then sinew comes on the bone, and flesh comes on the bone. And they stand up. And then God says, you're not done yet. Prophesy to the four winds to bring the breath of God. And so he does, he prophesies, and God's breath blows through those dry bones, and they became a great army, a living army. Now, the primary application of Ezekiel 37 is that God is going to raise up a dead nation, the, the, Israel, the nation of Israel that was in Babylon, and he's going to bring them out of captivity back into their own land. That's the primary interpretation, but it's a great illustration of the new birth. Did you know the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, and it means spirit, breath, or life, or spirit, breath, or wind, excuse me. The Greek word is pneuma, very same meaning. It can mean spirit, breath, or wind. What does God say to Ezekiel to do? Call forth my breath to enter into these dry bones and cause them to come to life. He's talking about his spirit. The spirit is that which gives life to spiritual dead people. Do you remember when God created Adam in the very beginning? He took the dust of the ground and formed him, made a body. It was, there was a body of a man there, but no life in it. And then God breathed into them the breath of life, and he became a living soul. That's another great illustration of what regeneration is all about. We had a body. We existed in this world without any life, without any spiritual life, until God breathed, sent his spirit into us. He sent his spirit into our hearts, the Bible says, so that we would cry out for the first time in our life, Abba, Father, relationship with God now, because of the spirit who now dwells inside. So the very first blessing of Abraham is the blessing of the Holy Spirit who gives life, new life. Okay, the second one. And now we can go to Galatians 3.8. The second one is that of justification. Let's take a look at it. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. Do you see how Paul is unfolding and explaining Genesis 12.3? Genesis 12.3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, 
Well, Lord, what does that mean? The Apostle Paul tells us the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. There's the blessing. All the families of the earth will be blessed. All the Gentiles, do you see it there? Gentiles, families of the earth, nations of the earth. The second blessing that is included in, in this text in Genesis 12.3 is the blessing of justification. Now, justification, to make it real simple, simply means that God pronounces guilty sinners righteous on account of Christ. It's not that he makes them righteous. That's something altogether different. He pronounces them. He declares them to be righteous. And never get that mixed up. If you start to think that justification is somehow God infusing righteousness into you, then you, you've, you've really done damage to the scripture. God justifies the ungodly, <clears throat> the Bible says in Romans 4, 5. The ungodly are justified through faith. Before they ever become righteous at all, they are declared righteous by Almighty God. Now, there's differences and similarities between justification and regeneration. Regeneration is the impartation of life. It's experiential. It's permanent. Justification is not the impartation of life. It is the giving of a right standing before God because of the work of Jesus imputed to you when you believe. Does that make sense? The imputation of the righteousness of Christ to your life. He credits the righteousness of Jesus to you when you put your faith and trust in him. It's not experiential. I mean, nothing happens to you when you believe and when you're justified before God. You don't know you've been justified because something goes off in your head. So it's not experiential and it happens outside of you. Regeneration is taking place inside of you by the work of the Holy Spirit. So sanctification is a glorious blessing. And this is a blessing for all the families of the earth. There are people from all over this globe who are going to go from condemnation to righteousness because of the work of Jesus applied to them as they believe the gospel. So regeneration, new life, justification, a new standing before God. Thirdly, sanctification. And here we're going to have to back up to our text in Acts again. Acts 3.25 and 26. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, what kind of blessing, Peter? Here it is. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There's our third blessing. Turning us from our wicked ways. What do we call that? <clears throat> Sanctification. Sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit making you like Jesus. He turns you from your wicked ways and he turns you to Christ. And that's repentance and faith. Turning from sin, turning to Jesus. Repentance, faith. And he stirs that up in you every day for the rest of your life. The Spirit of God does that in you and for you. Thank God that he does that. Have you ever looked at sanctification as being a blessing? Peter says it is. He came to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. So here we have regeneration, impartation of new life, justification, 
a new standing before God, sanctification, a new way of living before God. Because here you find yourself not only hating sin, but turning from sin and turning to Christ so that you might live in ways that please him. Now, there's a a big difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is not experiential. Sanctification is very experiential. You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when he puts his finger on some sin in your life and he says, you need to deal with that. You need to turn from that. You feel guilt. You'll feel conviction. You feel him stirring in you. As you're sanctified, you you feel the graces of love for God and love for people who are perishing. Love for the word of God, love for the gospel. These are all things that are happening as the Holy Spirit works in you to make you like Christ. Now, justification is perfect the instant it takes place in your life. In other words, the moment you're justified, you are as justified as you're ever going to get, right? First day you believed on Christ, you were as perfectly justified as you will ever be, even when you're in heaven. You will never be any more justified in heaven than you are the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. So it's perfect. It's permanent. You can never become unjustified. And it is uh, eternal. It lasts forever. So regeneration, justification, and then this beautiful work of sanctification going on in the believer's life. And then the fourth blessing is that of glorification. 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 This comes out of Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. No, excuse me, verse 18. Paul says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Here we have another promise made to Abraham. Abraham, I've got the promise of an inheritance for you. I'm promising you an inheritance. Well, what is that inheritance? that God promised Abraham. Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 13. Let's take a look at it. In Genesis 13, Abraham has told his nephew Lot that he can take all the well-watered pasture land and he'll take what is ever left over. And then God comes to Abraham. And in Genesis 13, starting in verse 14, I'm going to read verse 14 before we get to this text. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants or to your seed, important, and to your seed forever. Now, the inheritance, what is it? It's a piece of land, isn't it? It's the promised land. It's Palestine. And the Jews inherited that land. Their descendants enjoyed that land. But did you know that land was only a type of a greater fulfillment? It pictured something much greater than just this piece of real estate there in the Middle East. Let me show you that. Go over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, what city is God talking about here? Do you know? The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that we read about in the book of Revelation, where all the elect of all the ages gather together, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, their Savior. And it's a city because cities is where people live and people commune together. So we have this vision of a great city of the redeemed of all the ages. So, Abraham, your inheritance is going to be a piece of land. But that piece of land just points to something far greater. A heavenly piece of land. A heavenly inheritance. You will be glorified together with all the saints and all the holy angels in a heavenly city. Now, that must have been why in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Not just Palestine, the earth, a new earth in which righteousness dwells, an earth which now, earth now becomes heaven because Jesus is in our midst in a new earth. Or take a look at this one, Romans chapter four. The apostle Paul opens this up for us in the book of Romans. He says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his seed his descendants, that he would be heir of the what? World. Abraham, it's not just this little piece of land in Palestine that I've got for you as your inheritance. I'm going to give you the world. I'm going to give you the earth. I'm going to give you a heavenly country, a heavenly city. And he made that promise not just to Abraham. He made it to Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, you inherit the world. You inherit the earth. You inherit this heavenly city in a glorified body. In other words, we are talking about all of the riches of everlasting glory in heaven, ours, because of the promise made to Abraham and to his seed. So the substance of the blessings, new life, regeneration, new standing, justification, new living, sanctification, new communion eternally, <laughs> glorification. Now, there's one piece of the puzzle that we haven't unraveled yet, and that's the scope of these blessings. Who are they for? Well, Genesis 12.3 says, all the families of the earth. Genesis 22.18, all the nations of the earth. And then finally, Galatians 3.8, the Gentiles, which is all the... It's saying again the same thing, all the nations of the earth. Well, when we go to the last book of our Bible which is really good. We started out with the first book. We're going to wind up with the last one, and it ties it all together. Let's take a look how John, the revelator, pulls the pieces together for us in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we have a vision of the throne room. And we have, in chapter 5, all heaven weeping, because no one was found worthy to take this book from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne and to break its seals and open it up. The book evidently is God's eternal plan. But there's no one worthy to cause that eternal plan to unfold, to break the seal so that it takes place until the lion of the tribe of Judah comes forth, who also appears as a lamb who has been slain. And as he comes forth to take that book, all of heaven erupts in worship. 
Notice what they sing. Verse 9. And they sang a new song. Someone really ought to, well, I guess they have put these words <laughs> and made a song out of them. But wonderful. They sang, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There it is. He's not saying every person out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, any nation, but men from. There's going to be a representation taken from the Congo and China and Japan and Greenland and Iceland and the Arctic and South America and Ecuador and Mexico and the United States and Canada. Every nation, every people, every tongue under heaven is going to have a representation a representative in heaven. Can you imagine what that would be like when all of us get together, all the different colors of skin and all the languages? I don't know if we'll speak different languages when we get to heaven or not. But all the different people represented and all of them have a story. Yeah, this, this guy came to our people one day and he stood up in the city square and he started to preach about a crucified Savior, the Son of God. And I felt something stirring in my heart and I had faith to believe this message. And God transformed my life and I took that message to my village and others were saved. And then we planted churches in other villages and it spread throughout my country. Wouldn't that be wonderful to hear the stories of God's people? And you know, they'll be telling stories about how your life affected them. That's really what I want to get to this morning. God is a missionary God, and he's called us to be a missionary people. You see, what take, took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, was a radical shift. We have to see that. God did want the Jews to be a light to the nations, but they didn't do too well at it. By and large, every other nation on the face of the earth, except for the nation of Israel, was in utter darkness. You have a few people out of the Gentile nations that were being converted, like Rahab the harlot, Naaman the Syrian. There were a few people that were proselytized, but by and large, the Philistines, the Amorites, the Amalekites, all of those other ites, Girgashites, all of them were in darkness. They, didn't, they had no knowledge of the true and living God until Jesus comes. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, the Bible says that he bound the strong man, and as a result of that, the devil can no longer deceive the nations. He deceived them in the Old Testament. They were utterly deceived. But through the work of Jesus Christ, there is light that floods all across the globe through people that this Savior sends into the world. And Satan can't stop it. And so light is flooding into places like Papua New Guinea. The gospel is coming to unreached people groups all over the world. And Satan can't stop the forward progress of that gospel. Jesus ascends on high, and there is a great new work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, there was the Holy Spirit working, but it was on particular people, like prophets, priests, and kings. And that Spirit would come and go. And now, there, it was like a, a, a little sprinkle of showers in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, there's a deluge. God pours out the flood of his Holy Spirit. Why? Acts 1.8 You shall receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the shift between the old covenant and the new. This flooding of the Holy Spirit, this pouring out of the spirit on God's people, not just as they can have spiritual goosebumps in church. 
No, that they would be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, that they would become missionaries, bearing this gospel to people who've never heard it before. I want to tell you the story of one of the greatest missions movements in the world. You might not even have heard of this story before. I don't know. It's the Moravian movement. How many of you have heard of the Moravians? Anybody? Okay. Nicholas von Ludwig Zinzendorf was born in the year 1700 to wealthy Christian parents. He grew up kind of like a, a rich nobleman snob. He was a worldly little kid. He grew up. He felt the world owed him everything. He had everything he wanted. He was wealthy. But when he was 16 years old, he attended an art museum, and he saw a painting of Jesus Christ crucified, and there was an inscription there at the bottom of that painting that said, All this I have done for you. What have you done for me? And it cut this 16-year-old boy's heart to the quick. And right then and there, he surrendered his life completely to Jesus Christ. Six years later, he is in contact with some persecuted Christians that need a place to stay. At that time, throughout Germany, Christians were persecuted, and sometimes they needed a place of exile where the persecutors couldn't get to them. And so they asked, uh, I'll just call him Nicholas, because his name is too long, or Count Zinzendorf. <laughs> they asked Nicholas, could we stay on your, your estate there? And he agreed. He let them come in. And over the next five or six years, more and more of these persecuted Christians began coming and staying. And so there was this commune that developed right on his land, his estate there in Germany. The problem was there was all kinds of bickering and fighting that was going on, squabbles, because he had Catholics, he had Lutherans, he had Presbyterians, he had all kinds of these people with different ideas and different doctrines, and they fought and squabbled all the time. And so Nicholas started a prayer meeting. And soon thereafter, it was an August evening in the year 1727, that the people that were there at this prayer meeting, all they could say to describe it is that it was like a second Pentecost. God worked supernaturally and powerfully at that prayer meeting. And afterwards, the Spirit came on these people. And afterwards, they went about apologizing and repenting and asking each other to forgive them. And from that moment on, love and brotherhood prevailed amongst all these different kinds of Christians with different doctrinal beliefs. And they started a prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting went around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for over 100 years nonstop. Unbroken prayer. And out of that prayer movement birthed a missionary movement. In the year 1731, this slave from St. Thomas Island somehow found his way to Germany, and, and he pled with Nicholas to send missionaries to his island, which was in the Caribbean, uh, and to reach these slaves. The problem was that the only way you could reach these slaves was to sell yourself into slavery. And the tradition that has come down to us says that two men volunteered to sell themselves into slavery to go reach these slaves on this island. It's the only way it could be done. And from the prow of that ship, when they were saying goodbye and farewell to their family, never to see them again, this is for good, they said, may the lamb who is slain receive the reward of his suffering." And they sailed off. Now, can you imagine that? And they were just the first fruits of this missionary movement. 
this, the spirit of prayer birthed the spirit of missions and they had such a heart to see all the world know about this great Jesus. They wanted Jesus to become famous throughout all the world. And so bands of two and three would set off for South America or South Carolina where they tried to reach the slaves there. Or they reached other places, uh, the Indians within North America. They went to the Arctic. They went to Greenland. They went to the uh, East Islands. They went to Africa. They went to the North Pole. <laughs> they, they went all over the globe. Within 150 years, they sent out 2,158 missionaries. Within 20 years, the Moravian movement had sent out more missionaries than all of Protestant Christians for 200 years since the Reformation began. This was an a work, a divine, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And that thrills my heart. They did this without paid clergy. They did this without Bible schools. Nobody was, was uh, supported. They would learn trades like shoemaking so that when they went, they could set up their own little business, make a living, and then in the evenings, weekends, whatever, wherever they had free time, they would speak the gospel and gather these converts into small little groups. It was a grassroots movement. I love that story because it, it shows what the Spirit of God can do. The Spirit of God is concerned about not just people here in the United States. Those of us who have heard the gospel all our lives, where there's a church in practically every street corner, where you can turn on Christian radio 24 hours a day, when there's, we are glutted with the gospel, but there are places in this world who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus one time. And they'll perish unless they are saved through trusting Christ. That's why we send missionaries. And I wanted to speak to you about missions this morning because that's what our text is speaking about. We need to be involved not just in local missions. We need to be involved in global missions. We've talked a lot about the fact that we are missionaries. That's one of the identities, the four primary identities that we assume. We are family, we're missionaries, we're servants, and we're disciples. That is absolutely true. But we must also have a concern for and an interest in global missions. So what can we do if we want to participate with God in his missionary endeavors around the world? Well, number one, God may be calling I don't know about this, but he might be calling some of you at some point to actually go. And all of us need to be open to that possibility. If we ever say, Lord, I'll do anything you want, but I'm not going to be a missionary. Watch out, because <laughs> God's probably going to make you a missionary. We need to be surrendered and say, OK, Lord, whatever it is you want to do, where can you use me best? Where would you want me to spend my life? And it could be that the Lord would have one of us here in this small gathering today to become a missionary. Be open to that. Ask the Lord, is that what you want me to do? Secondly, we can pray. And we need to be praying more for the work of God around the world. We tend to become absorbed in our own lives and our own friends and our own families and our church and our, our city. And all that's good, but that's not enough. I want to encourage you to go to operationworld.org. And if you do that, and just pull it up on your computer every day. They'll tell you the nation of the world that you can be praying for. And they'll give you some really quick statistics 
how many people live there, how big a land mass it is, how many Christians, the percentage of Christians in that city, how many unreached people groups there are. And so you can pray with intelligence after you've read that about the people in that particular nation. And you know, the days that we fast and pray as a church, I think what we need to start doing is adopting a nation for that day. And that's part of our prayers for that day. And I'll let you know what nation it is ahead of time so that we can, as we're fasting, we can be lifting up the people of that nation to the Lord and asking God to reach them with his gospel. So be open to going, pray for that nation. And we also need to give financially to people who are already doing the work in that area. When we started, even before we started, this, we were a house church before we started this church. We decided that we would set aside $90 a month. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you only have about 10 people in your church, that, that was a lot of money back then. But, you know, I began to think we haven't revisited that. We still don't have very many people, but I think we can afford to up that, and I think we ought to. Now, we are setting aside 10% of everything that comes in to local church planting. We're setting it aside so that one day, by faith, when we send out someone to plant another church locally, they'll have some money to work with. Wouldn't it be great if we set aside 10% to global mission, global church planting? That's just a minimum. Maybe God will enable us to give more than that. But as just as a, as a start. So th those are some things we can do. And also, if you would like to actually... Adopt a family, a missions family. You can go through Gospel for Asia for $30 a month. You can contribute towards the support of a whole family. If it's a single brother, you might be able to take care of all of his needs. If it's a whole family with wife and children, sometimes they need two or three people chipping in $30 to take care of all of those needs. But the people that are doing this work in India can do it for a fraction of the cost that we can do it. So I would encourage you to consider Gospel for Asia, maybe taking on a family and supporting them monthly. So we can go, we can pray, and we can give. Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Here are the blessings. No condemnation. You're justified. You're not spiritually dead anymore. You're alive by the Spirit. You're not polluted and depraved and a slave of sin. The Holy Spirit is freeing you from sin by His mighty working power and sanctification. And you have an eternal inheritance. If you've come this morning and these blessings aren't yours, they can be if you will put your trust in Jesus. I want to leave you with a glorious promise from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. You don't have to have any money. You don't have to have any righteousness to come. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. 
Something he keeps repeating here. The idea that we must come. Incline your ear. Come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Let's pray. Father, if there's any here who have never received new life in Jesus Christ, would you help them to come and eat without money, without cost, to receive freely the water of life that is offered in the gospel today. And Lord, for those of us who have come, thank you for the inestimable privilege of being able to work together with you in the work of global missions around this planet, this globe. Lord, direct us as a church. Enable us to be generous, sacrificial givers so that this work can go forth steadily, that you can conquer the hearts of men. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.